I'm Joe Collins, and this is Dear DM, a Dungeons & Dragons advice podcast where each episode I sit down with your favorite DMs in order to discuss, debate, and hopefully answer your D&D-related questions. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Before we begin, I have a quick reminder, and that is for those of you in the Anaheim area, we will be having an official Nerdsmith meetup at WonderCon this coming weekend. Uh, You can come say hi to me and all the other lovely hosts and nerds at the Hilton right across from the convention center. Um, We're planning on 8 p.m. on Saturday, March 30th, so please keep an eye out as we get more info, and I'd love to see you there. Um, and as always, I just want to remind everyone to please submit your questions to us either on Twitter at DearDMPodcast or to our email DearDM.Submit at gmail.com or in our Space in the Nerdsmith Discord channel. That way you can have your question answered by some of the amazing DMs we get on the show. Um, so, without further ado, uh, today's guest is the president of Drop Dead Studios and author for the Spheres of Power Magic System. I am so pleased to be joined by Adam Myers. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I've seen some of the people that have been on your show, and I feel humbled that I get to walk these steps. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, on in, on the other hand, I'm always on the show, so you'll look good by comparison no matter what. Um, but yeah, it's good to have you here. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on talking about Fears of Power, that kind of stuff. Um, but first, I always like to start off with the same question, and that question is, how did you get into D&D and tabletop in general? So, I am too young to be a first-generation player, but I grew up as a second-generation player. Before I was born, my dad uh, ran D&D. He had this amazing GM that he would tell stories of back in ye olde golden days of insane death trap dungeons and all that goodness. And he raised us on the game. In fact, he would sneak life lessons in and stuff like that for all of us growing (laughs) up. So... Literally, one of my earliest memories that I still recall was arguing with my little, arguing with my older brothers about whether the class was called thief or fief, and they kept trying to convince me that it was thief. You know, starts with a th and ends with an f. But in my being way too young to comprehend things, way that just didn't make sense to me. It was either <laughs> thth or ff. Why are you confusing? But and that's why I love rogues, is they were. Rogues and their many variants were literally the first class I ever played, and I still love them to this day. So that's what got me into it, and even therefore, after um, you know, games kind of fell out of fashion, and my brothers, you know, were off in college and stuff, and you know, all that stuff happened. They always had a wonderful place in my heart. So when I got to college myself, I was able to find some players to play around with. I never had as much luck as I would have liked to, like in high school, finding a group, but it was always a part of my childhood growing up that I remember distinctly. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I am really hopeful that that becomes a major thing because with the amount of people playing D&D now at older ages and younger ages, like I like to imagine there's lots of people getting their first experience now from a very early age. It also makes the, you know, stigma versus not stigma different because i know that i grew up in the era where it wasn't the satanic panic i wasn't there during that but i was there in the just afterward period but it's Mm -hmm. hard to you know have much of a stigma when your very religious household also plays lots of dungeons and dragons you know so (laughs) it was a great experience growing up wouldn't change it for the world yeah and so then i imagine you played a bunch of different systems i know you eventually switched over to pathfinder because uh that's where as far as i know spheres of power kind of originated right yeah uh i mean growing up of course we were in i was in the second edition D was the one that we played most of the time growing up um i kind of missed third edition but by the time i was in college ready to you know start mixing it up and murder a hoboing or whatever uh, that was when Pathfinder was coming into it, so it was just seemed like the system to go to, especially during you know the Haro days of the edition wars with fourth edition that should not really be revisited because the PTSD has not calmed down in the world at large. 
But yeah, it just yeah. seemed the place to go. And now with you know fifth edition doing pretty well and second edition Pathfinder on the horizon, we are going to be branching out into other systems pretty soon. But yeah, at this point in time, it's Pathfinder only for a lot of our stuff. Yeah. So what what made you? What was that seed of inspiration that led to Spheres of Power? What was the moment where you realized you wanted to do magic differently? Two things, actually. Uh, one, I had two friends uh, in a um, place we used to live, so I haven't seen them in a while. But one of them wanted to run a campaign, and like a lot of people, you know, he was, you know, dabbling in fantasy authorship on the side, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to make a campaign kind of based in this world he was playing with. And one time I was talking to him about it, and he lamented the fact that how much of his world he had to change to fit Pathfinder, to, to fit the, the Dungeons & Dragons tradition. That in the book he wanted to write, you know, there was no arcane wizards running around, there was no divine clerics running around. He had all these different ideas for, you know, other races, other magics, other things. But the D&D D20 fantasy system literally could not handle that. Um, mm. unless he were to rewrite the game from the ground up, he had to adapt his vision to fit the mechanics. And I, as just like a player sitting there, I did not like that. You know, I didn't like hearing that, you know, that the GM's world that he wanted to take us on a wonderful adventure through was physically impossible to create. And the other impetus was another friend of mine who came to me. I had already published a couple books. I had, Done. My first Kickstarter was for Rogue Glory, a revamp of a lot of the Rogue, the, the way that the Rogue worked in Pathfinder, a revamp of the stealth rules and stuff like that. So I'd been dabbling with publishing. And uh, another friend of mine came up and suggested an idea for a product of a, making spellcasters, but where your abilities were spell-like abilities rather than spells. And talking to him about that idea uh, and about how if you took that idea of you know, so I, what he was suggesting was kind of like you're a rogue, but instead of rogue talents, they would be magic powers. And I talked to him about like, well, we extrapolated that out to its logical conclusion. Instead of just having it be, here's a class that does magic differently, you would have a whole different style of magic. Uh, and so when we took that idea and coupled it with my lament of my first friend uh, his and his inability to make magic fit his world rather than and so that he had to do it the other way around. Uh, Sears of Power was kind of the result. Uh, when we first launched the Kickstarter, we assumed it was going to be a little book with you know a few backers doing like a little different way of handling magic, but it got big enough. Uh, especially given how terrible our Kickstarter page was, I, I'm glad to everyone who liked <laughs> us anyways. Uh, it got big enough that we realized this is like a real need, that there's a legitimate need for people who have grown up in the D20 tradition, they they love the D20 tradition, but they don't want to be limited by the D20 tradition. They're like, they, they, they don't want to go out and play a different system. They like Pathfinder, D&D, and all of that, but they're tired of the limitations of Vancey and Magic. And so we went with it. We ran with it. We, we'd hit a sweet spot, and we haven't looked back since. Yeah, and it's it's remarkable because it's very at this point it's very widespread, especially among Pathfinder. Because um, I remember I was I got invited to a random small campaign back in college, back in I think it must have been about two thousand late two thousand fourteen, early two thousand fifteen. Um, and I was invited to a, a short campaign and they said, oh yeah, we're using this, this experimental thing called Spheres of Power that, that I found. And I'm like, oh, that sounds neat. And then fast forward like a couple of years ago, my brother keeps on telling me about it. And it's become this whole thing where it's just, it's extremely successful because I think of how modular it is and how it kind of lets you play how you want to feel or fe play it the way you want to really. Yeah, like our our tagline that we always use is it's concept-based magic, that you can figure out what you want to be and then build a way that makes it work, rather than the other way around where you figure out what you want to be and then try and adapt it to wizard and spell list and stuff like that. Anyway, that that's yeah. my tagline for it. That's awesome. So, yeah, now that we got a little bit of background, um, do we want to go ahead and jump into some questions sent in by some lovely listeners? Sure. Sounds good to me. All right. Um, so our first question is, um, 
A lot of the time I have a creature in mind that I want to have my party encounter, but I don't have the time to homebrew a stat block for them, so instead I'll just take the mechanics of another creature in the monster manual and completely change the flavor to fit the monster I had in mind. Is this something you do often? And if so, what are some of your favorite examples that you've used before? And that was asked by Bugbear Necessities. That is an awesome name. I would just like to say <laughs> Bugbear Necessities is brilliant and I'm not going to forget it. <laughs> I'm very proud of some of the people who sent in these questions. There are some some classics. So, um, I mean, obviously, as since we write Spheres of Power, which is a different magic system, we do have to do adaptations to that. Uh, where we, we take a classic monster and rip out its spell casting and replace it with our own system. That That's a thing that we do. But as far as um, taking a monster and trying to revamp it into another monster entirely, I think the dirty truth of a lot of game design is that's how the professionals do it too. Um, <laughs> like, you have the classic idea of, I, I, I want to make a Hydra, but I'm just going to make it an Ice Hydra. But even beyond that, it's the, I want to create the, you know, whatever massive ideas in your head, but however unique that idea in your head may be, step one is find a monster of the correct CR and the correct um, type as far as, you know, frontline bruiser, magic using creature or what, and you use that as your baseline, and then you can rip out the guts, and by the time you're done, it may look completely different. But uh, building a creature from the ground up is not inherently better than taking someone else's monster and revamping it to your purposes. Um, among novel writing circles, they use the phrase, well stolen is half composed. That if you can find <laughs> a wonderful base to work from, half your job has been done already, and it won't be worse for having stolen it. It'll probably be better, because you know that what you're dealing with was already balanced, was already given an okay, so as long as your ending numbers don't aren't too far different, as far as, like, average damage or, you know, total hit points, and if you do adjust those, you would compensate in some other way, you're guaranteed to still end up with something of the right CR without having to be afraid that you got your math wrong or that you got done figuring out things like you would build a character and then realize, crap, it's, you know, according to the average monster guidelines, I, I made a, a 10 instead of an 8 and all that. So I am yeah. all for stealing that way. I am all for taking something and revamping it. And it also is really fun when you can look at a player and describe the monstrosity and see them be like, oh, I know what this is. I've played the game long enough. I know what bestiary entry, bestiary <laughs> entry this is. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, something you, it's something you can do to flip it on someone who metagames a bit too heavily when they know every monster by heart already. You know, it can it can homebrew is the best defense for that. But yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned CR particularly because that's what I find myself using it for a lot of the times. Is if say I want a certain monster, but there's no real close equivalent in the CR range that I want to use for my party, um, I just look for something of a similar CR and then adapt that to be what I want it to be. Because there are a lot of uh, types of monsters like beasts or undead and cat cat categories where there are these gaps. There are these large gaps where there is no, say, beast between, like, CR7 and CR15. Or, you know, there is no um, undead that fits, that is not incorporeal or something like that. And I think that that's really the place where I find myself using it the most. Yeah, especially uh, when you're doing something like that and you discover what so seems like an obvious oversight. Like, um, when... We did Spheres of Power. We um, One of the things that we funded was this big old book called Wizards Academy. And it's a combination of a massive um, adventure module that's like adaptable from level 1 to 20. It's not a, a campaign to take you from 1 to 20, but it, it can do kind of anything that you need it to do. And uh, bestiary. And the whole kind of shtick of our bestiary with it was that you're running around a magic academy that due to magical leakage... Every monster you fight is weird, somehow. And so uh, we made a bestiary of a bunch of different things, really trying to, like, find what didn't exist uh, and fill it. So, like, one of the things that we did that I'm kind of quite proud of, for an example, is we have the, um, as far as beautiful woman as monster, you know, you've got the succubus, which is the evil version, and the nymph, that is the fey version, but there was no celestial version. 
So we specifically had tried to set about creating the primary to be the archetypal, like, loving angel. Like, that was just this mm. weird oversight that no one seems to have had plugged before. So it was really fun to actually try and plug that hole. Uh, and a few other things like that popped up. Yeah, so. where it's just these... Because these, obviously the Monster Manual can't have an option for every goddamn scenario. So being able to make these faster than it would to be to actually calculate things out is very useful. Yeah. I guess it's... Sorry, I'm. we're just going to keep on talking about it. I feel like monster design <laughs> and magic item design are this weird catch-22 when it comes to playing them. Because people want there to be clear rules for how to build monsters and clear rules for how to build magic items. The more specific, the better. But by their definition, you know... They can be anything. The more specific the mm-hmm. rules are, the more limiting it is. So all, like, I know at least in Pathfinder, like, the, the Paizo team keeps trying to put out all these guidelines and giant rule sets for how to make magic items and how to build monsters. But at the end of the day, all their rules seem to be figure out what feels good, because I can't tell you anything more specific without telling you no on something that shouldn't be a no. I feel like that is part of 5e's success is it's um, simple enough and, and and approachable enough that that is kind of the default with 5e. Is there, it's just whatever feels right, you'll get a feel for it and you can adjust it if it doesn't feel right. Um, I think that's part of what makes 5e so accessible to homebrew. But yeah, I think that answers that one pretty thoroughly. Um, let's go ahead and jump on to the second question, which is, my players have developed an interesting habit of being anti-murder hobos, meaning they will go well out of their way and to ridiculous length to avoid fighting or killing anything, even oozes. Do I try to spice up combat with some sort of scenario that forces a fight, or should I just let them keep wiggling their way out of violence? And that was asked by Bill 99 Um, whenever I see gm advice not just like something that i give but things that you'll hear on a podcast things you'll see on a blog whenever people together to talk about what gms need to do to make their job better 90 percent of the time the answer comes down to communicate with your players Mm -hmm. golden rule i feel like that is at the heart of this because are they avoiding combat because they think it's a hilarious challenge to see if they can beat the circumstance without killing are they avoiding combat because they are pacifists and they are trying to play against the type of the game to play a pacifist game or are they avoiding combat because they think combat is boring and they are trying to skip the dumb parts in air quotes to get to the good parts in air quotes? And the answer to the question of why are they doing this would determine what the response would be. Because if they just think combat is dumb, if they're just avoiding combat because it's the part of the game that they hate, then yeah, spicing up combat and doing something crazy and giving them a combat that they would never forget would help. But if they're avoiding combat because their character concept is pacifists, then, I mean, putting them in situations that are harder to pacifist their way out of would be dramatic. Um, But forcing the issue, especially if you don't talk to them about, I'm going to force the issue, or beware, this game is going to be really hard for you to wriggle your way out of, and if you're not willing to get your hands dirty, I can't, you know... Let them know the expectation walking in that it's going to be harder and harder to live this concept... Um, that would be a middle ground response, or if they're just having a lot of fun doing the the non-combat parts of the game and it's a challenge to them, then the proper response would be to roll with it. I mean, you don't need combat. Back in the first edition days, you actually got uh, an experience point per, like, gold piece you collected. So if you killed the dragon to take his horde, or if you bypassed the dragon and found a way to trick him out of his horde, you got the same experience in the end. You can play the game without combat if that's the game they want to play. And so my advice would be figure out which of those circumstances they are. Um, I mean, I guess it to me, it feels like the um, one of those classic paladin questions that like if you have a player who plays a paladin and is trying very very hard to be a good person if they want a dramatic game where you're trying to force moral choices on them and they have to do that then that could be fun but if they're just trying to be a good person and play a nice game and you're the dick gm who's trying to make them fall then you're a dick 
And I feel like the exact same <laughs> yeah. circumstance plays here. If they're pacifists because that's fun for them, messing it up makes you a dick. If they're pacifists, pacifists because they hate your combats and your combats suck, well, fix your combats. But figure out where the problem is before you start throwing around solutions. Yeah, I think that's the, the base of it. Because also I've had, I've definitely had parties before who they avoid combat not because they're like they're against combat or things like that but because they're so goddamn attached to their characters that they're afraid of losing them or <laughs> you know it can be it can be a variety of things um but yeah the the solution comes down to a variety of things and honestly uh, the solution i'd say for a lot of these scenarios is you might not be playing the right system or it could work in the system, but there are systems much better suited to non-combat-oriented campaigns, in my opinion. <laughs> I feel like that's the weird paradox of, especially the D&D tradition, is that people want to play games that D&D is not equipped for, but playing a game in another system would require finding the other system, reading through the whole book, maybe doing a practice game to figure out the rules, and then getting them together to play it. So they'd much rather play D&D against type than go through all the effort to find you know a burning wheel game or something mm -hmm. and it, i mean it's it's one of the, it's a comfort zone because even like some games like like fate or or other ones like that would be like i've had plenty of campaigns before where it probably would have made more sense than fate but because everyone knew D D, no one wanted to try that out so yeah i feel like it's one of those things where it very much depends on the group and how comfortable they are trying something new but it's, yeah, a lot of times people talk about, oh man, I wish, how do I make a D&D &D game this? And I say, you make it that by not playing D&D. &D. <laughs> oh, but then, sorry, I, did, I feel like that's, again, one of those, especially for me as like a third party developer for Pathfinder, that's kind of my job, though, is to make products <laughs> for people who love Pathfinder, but don't want to play Pathfinder. So. <laughs> exactly they're in well, love with the idea of pathfinder but i mean i guess it's like i mean to pull up a digital example like that's why skyrim is still a lot of people's go-to game because even though the game is you know built with a very specific murder hobo style of play in mind through the mod community you can make it whatever the frick you want and people would much rather play the game they love in the way they want to rather than go and try and find a new game that's like skyrim but x is different yep absolutely um so yeah i, I think that answers that question as well basically find out why they're avoiding violence and cater to that either and it may not even be a problem at all but yeah so i think we're ready to jump into the little game we play at the middle of the show Ooh. um yeah which is uh for those of you who might not have listened before um here we take a little break in order to uh roll on some random character tables that i've made up and helped populate with suggestions from folks at home uh, and we create some NPCs to mine for a world, uh, based off of a role for race, profession, background, and character quirk. Um, we get some random characters, and then the, my favorite part is those of you who are, uh, artistic and like to draw, write, cosplay, anything of the sort. Uh, if you're inspired by these characters, then you can send in that to our email at deardm.submit at gmail.com or to our Twitter at DearDMPodcast, and I love seeing those every week. Um, last week we had a fantastic rendition of our um, human bounty hunter gunslinger who just happens to have an obsession with collecting stuffed animals. Um, Bex was absolutely fantastic on that. Um, and it's just the art makes me so happy every time. So please send those in to us if you're inspired by the characters we create. But for now, um, Adam, do you have a D20 ready? I do. Excellent. Um, so our first roll is going to be for the race. Four. Four is dwarf. Off to a good start. All right. So what is the dwarf's profession? All right. I have a nine. Nine is cleric. We are starting off very generic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel kind of bad for him now after the coll animal collecting bounty hunter. We have a... <laughs> you never know there's still time let's see how we can screw him up with the background four these dice are not rolling high i i hope that your <laughs> wacky ones are not the higher rated ones they generally are but that makes him a dwarf cleric entertainer which is not typical all right um, and then what is this dwarf's quirk 14 
14 is tone deaf but loves to sing loudly. Well, that suggests a story right there. (laughs) Exactly. A a dwarf cleric entertainer who just happens to not be able to carry a tune... (laughs) Um, this is, this is, this is the NPC you make to drive the party a little insane, I think. He goes out and he rescues people in danger. And as he ministers to their wants and needs, he always provides them a show in order to help ease their (laughs) emotional trauma. And he knows he's doing a great job because they always have plastered smiles on their faces by the end and or scream as the demons possessing them are exercised. Oh, lordy. All right, so we've got one very interesting option to start. Let's go ahead and start with the second choice. Uh, Let's do another roll for race. All right. I have a few that I've just rolled in a row to save a little bit of time. Choice one is 16. Uh, 16 is Kenku. We've got a Kenku in the mix. What is a Kenku? I do not know what that is actually off the top of my head. Really? Um, It's essentially a cursed bird person, a small cursed bird person who is not allowed to fly uh, fly or speak. Um, So they have to mimic. They use mimicry for everything. Um, they They can't speak language. They can only mimic sounds they've heard. Wow. All right. Yeah, they're they're very fun, um, but yeah. So that we have a Kenku. What is the Kenku's profession? Fourteen. Fourteen is artist. All right, makes that that's a little contradictory given the lore, but but we'll work with it. Well, he draws um, things so he doesn't have to. In order to speak, he speaks through his drawings. True. Yeah, in some of the lore, it even goes as far as to say they're not able to have in like creative thought. They're not allowed ha- ha- allowed to have original ideas, so it's it, they must be like some sort of. They only do prints. They do prints of something someone else has drawn. All right. Next up, I got twelve. Twelve is sage. All right. So we got a small bird person who is a dr- uh, an artist and a sage. But what is weird about them? What's the character quirk? Thirteen cannot swim and has no indication to learn. So that altogether, that's. Not congealing into too much of an idea for me, but regardless, I, I'm just always a fan of Kenku. Regardless, it's quite a combination of types there. Yeah, it's it's kind of a kind of a mystery meat of an NPC. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and roll one more, and we'll pick from our favorite. All right, we have ten, four, six, and sixteen. So that's a so ten is Goliath. All right. I love a good Goliath. Next is four. That would be Ranger. All right. Then the six for the background? Yep. Uh, That'd be Gladiator. And then the quirk for this character. Nineteen. Nineteen is easily deceived by anyone who uses big words he does not understand. (laughs) My God. So That's a character concept. Yep. Uh, I could roll with that. Some sort of Goliath Ranger, so ranged Gladiator. Um, who's just not, he's hes not great with words, and anything more than two syllables might be a bit much. Which might explain why he is a gladiator, because someone told him it would be serendipitous if he did so. Oh my god, I, I, I love this character. So, we've got our dwarf cleric entertainer who can't hold a tune. We've got our kenku artist sage, who um, couldn't swim and had no inclination to learn. Uh, and now we have our Goliath Ranger Gladiator, who um, uh, is easily deceived by anyone who uses big words he does not understand. Um, so I'll leave it up to you, Adam. Which of these is your favorite of the three? I think the Gladiator, who cannot, who is easily deceived, that would be an interesting person to have in an end. As a GM, that would be my favorite because that would be a very memorable character that I could have show up anywhere. Like, where whatever the PCs are doing, he's suddenly there because someone talked him into doing it by using big <laughs> words. So he would be a great NPC to pop up as a recurring funny moment throughout whatever the players are doing. But as a player, I'd want to be the cleric because then I'd have control over being a wonderful cleric entertainer and any time that I needed to could spice up the table by doing something silly over the fact that I can't actually carry a tune. Yes. Um, I, I like I like the Goliath for an NPC as well. Just like, 
I, I especially like the idea that he's specifically being deceived and and kind of uh, used by his like his manager like in the ring. Like they're constantly telling him, "Oh yeah, I'll get you a high, high percentage. You'll get a high percentage. Uh, we'll we'll make sure you get paid more this time." And he just always goes along with it because he's not he's not entirely sure if he's getting the right end of the deal or not. All right, so I think that does it for that. Um, so if you are inspired by a Goliath Ranger gladiator who is deceived by big words, please send in uh, whatever that inspires you to do to us, either on Twitter or by email. Um, and if you have any ideas for something as an option for either a race, profession, background, or quirk for any kind of sentient creature that could be an NPC in our world, go ahead and send those into our email as well, and I'll be happy to add them to the list. Um, so yeah, um, got that behind us. Are we ready to answer some more questions? All right. All right. Um, so this next one is, um, to what extent do you in your home game allow player character options from other sources than the standard fare? Um, do you generally stick to core books, uh, just allow Unearthed Arcana or let the players throw in anything that kind of seems balanced? And that was asked by Mariah. Uh, now I know obviously as someone who writes, uh, for other stuff that you definitely allow that stuff, but beyond your own material, do you generally allow, uh, uh, outside material for, for players? Um, that's always a little bit tricky just because a lot of the games that I have run over the past several years have been playtest games where we're very specifically Mm -hmm. going, okay, here's a class that has not been published yet. Here are some ideas that have not been done yet. How, go go wild and see how they play. <laughs> so that's kind of a yes or yes and no because obviously if I'm play testing things, I want them to stick to what I'm play testing. But uh, that's definitely outside the standard fare and the standard books. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it's not a play test game specifically or an idea there where there's something very specific we're trying to see from the characters. I try to be as permissible as I can. Um, I want to say that I try to be as permissible as I can without breaking the theme, but even then, mm. I tend to err on the side of, okay. Uh, like, in the last game that I ran with, uh, so it was our, our campaign setting, Skyborn, um, which, you know, has some very specific lore, but we tried to make it as open as we could, so, you know, any... Pretty much anything you could find a place in the world where it could fit. Uh, and I thought it was, you know, as permissible as could be, because we had found a way for everything to happen. And then one of the players comes up to me and says, I want to be a sentient suit of armor. Let's go. <laughs> and <laughs> as a GM, that was one of the weirdest moments that I've ever been through, coupled only by someone tr- when we were trying uh, a few years earlier to play in like a standard generic you know, high fantasy setting who wanted to be an android gunslinger, but at least there were rules for that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, we had to figure out what it meant to be a sentient suit of armor. Uh, w- was he going to be like an actual animated object? No, he was like a super science suit found in an ancient tomb that uh, was just going to latch onto an NPC to be his mindless thrall wearing him. And we had a very interesting campaign idea that came out of that because they ended up finding an intelligent sword that trusted the fellow object over, you know, all the meat people (laughs) around and it went to some interesting places. But yeah, I, I really wish sometimes that my players would stick to this concept, stick to the theme, stick to the setting. But generally (laughs) speaking, as long as it has a semblance of balance to it, we can make it work. You know, it, um, one of the things that, like, uh, we sometimes point out, like, a lot of the, at least in the Pathfinder world, but I think it, also in 5th edition D&D and everywhere else as well, among the established, um, third-party companies, so like Cobalt Press, um, Rogue Genius Games and Everyman Games and us with Drop Dead Studios, um, some, often we are the very, often the very same people who are writing the official rules are writing the third-party rules. Um, in Pathfinder, because it's a slightly smaller community, it most definitely is. The people who they hire to publish official material also run their own campaign. I think it's Legendary Games uh, is kind of famous mm. for, like, they hire... I think that's Jason. I, I'm her- tor- terrible at names. But th- they hire him to write their official material, and then he just takes all the extra bits that couldn't make it into the book because of word count limitations and publishes it as a third-party add-on. 
So it's hmm. literally his books are, I wrote this for the official Paizo release. Here's all the extra bits. Um, so I know some people are always hesitant about third-party material. They're hesitant about people bringing in things. They don't know if it's balanced or not. But, uh, I mean, yes, sometimes the third-party material may have been written by a GM who just homebrewed something and put it on the web so you don't know, like, how balanced it is. But more than half the time, it was probably written by the same group of professional authors who wrote your main book. So you can trust that it'll be okay. And if it unbalances, it's probably because you just combined too many publishers together and they found an exploit because, you know, Legendary Games isn't keeping track of all the feats Rogue Genius Games publishes when they publish their own because that would be way too much of an interlocking web. Yeah, and I feel like because the the fear is always that they'll just throw in something that's overpowered, but I feel like after a while you get to the point where if it's unbalanced, you can sell at a glance. (laughs) <laughs> if it's going to be bad, you can be like you can do like one quick read through of like the the uh class traits and abilities. It's like, nope, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken. Like those ones just jump out. Yeah. Um I feel like that's one of those things that like I've given people as design advice before who who've I've sent out to write on different projects, that there's you have things have to look balanced, they have to appear balanced. And they have to play balanced both for the min-maxer who's used to optimizing and for the beginner who really doesn't care about that. If you can find the sweetest spot of design where it both looks balanced and is balanced, no, eat for a beginner and an expert, you've, you've created something magical and wonderful. Um, yeah. Like oftentimes when uh, – that's the battle that we fight – as designers is sometimes people will say something is imbalanced when they haven't played with it or it's imbalanced, but only in like a a weird combination of feats from a few different people. But that's what we always aim for is for it to look balanced and to play balanced for a beginner and for a min maxer that it doesn't have exploits that we weren't aware of. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think most of the time third party publishers succeed more often than they fail or they don't fail at that oh, yeah. any more than any more often than the official publications do who also sometimes have to write redactions because oh crap we only found out after we published the book that feet x y and z combined produces a billion damage per yeah. round in general yeah if you if you can see that it's from an actual publisher chances are it's going to be fine um just just as long as it's not just from straight the D wiki from from someone who wanted to write out their anime character um you're you're gonna be fine i honestly in my games i i generally allow anything that meets i mean the general rule i have is it has to be balanced it can't be blatantly broken um if it's something that's experimental if it's some like homebrew that i'm not familiar with i'm like laying fly i always let them know that i I take that i have the uh i reserve the right to alter it as we play if it proves to be uh problematic um and the final thing for me and almost the more important thing for me is if it fits the setting and the feel of the campaign um because i know at least for me and my players the way we play recently um and the kind of games we play it's all storytelling and thematic and everything and sometimes you can just really throw that feel if there's one character who seems entirely out of sync with the rest of the world via their class those even though i mean i managed to make the sentient suit of armor work so Mm -hmm. oh yeah you can you can manage a lot of stuff like that but that's i mean in terms of ideas i've gotten for character concepts magic suit of armor is not that out there (laughs) um like fucking um Seder real estate agent is uh is is uh one that I've heard before or like Okay, that is intriguing to me actually. Like <laughs> it's intriguing, but doesn't exactly fit in a low fantasy setting. <laughs> yeah, very true. Not to mention that I've no idea how real estate agent, you know, handles what role that fills in combat. I mean, there's got to be something about this old person arrest. I don't know. There's got to be some jokes in there about repossessing or something of that effect. But it's just not coming to me right now. But yeah, um, so I think we answered that one. I think we can go ahead and jump on to our last question for the day. Um, and that is, how has your personal DMing style changed over time? Do you still run the same kind of campaigns you ran when you started, albeit with more polish? Or have you leaned in an entirely new uh, direction of flavor uh, altogether? 
and I was asked by four kobolds in a trench coat. Also a very great name. Yes. Um, I am curious as if it's inspired by a recent event in uh, Critical Role. But uh. <laughs> um, When I was younger and I played with my brothers, um, I tried very hard to think up elaborate plots and think up um, you know, el- elaborate circumstances and plot my way through things. But most of the time these days, I find that to a certain extent... The less I plan, the better. I mean, obviously, mm. take that to its extreme, and that's not all right. But I personally find I have a lot more fun when I am letting the players have their freedom. Like, um, so, there was one time when I was the player to a game. In fact, the, I think this was the last time that I got the chance to actually be the player, so it was like five years ago, uh, <laughs> where the GM... um. Gave us a bunch of money. Because, you know, in Pathfinder, money is an important part of your character build. You're supposed to have a certain amount of wealth by level. So he's like, oh, they're short X amount of money. Let me drop a giant pile of money in their lap. And surely they'll go and buy a bunch of plus one swords (laughs) and plus one suits of armor. We didn't. Or we instantly started discussing real estate. uh, How much money it would cost to get our own boat. Whether we asked him for world-building questions, I don't think he'd figured out yet about what the nearby markets were that we could take said boat on uh, trading adventures to, uh, if we wanted to be pirates, all <laughs> sorts of stuff. And it was, you could, I, I have never seen a man look so scared over people discussing <laughs> hypothetical boating trips. Uh, but it, he had not expected it at all, because he had a plot, he had an elaborate um story and he was going to send us on it and everything we were saying would have messed with his story (laughs) um so for my personal style i try very hard like if i've got world events that are happening if there's a plot line i want the adventurers to know about i make sure they know about it but then as much as i can i try to give them freedom it's um if okay shameless plug of someone else uh, Tracy Hickman, the grand uncle of D&D, has, uh, wrote a book called Extreme Dungeon Mastery, which is this hilarious romp full of all of his old D&D stories and various DMing advice. And he calls it the closed matrix, that if you have a sandbox game, then there's no plot. They run around. Adventurers just go off doing whatever they want to do. And the railroad campaign is when you have a plot line and they will follow your plot line and you will take them where they need to go. The closed matrix is that middle ground where there are events happening in the world. They know about the events happening in the world, but they can make their choices about how they react to the things going around the world. Um, That you can give them hooks into a plot to explore, but they still have the freedom to explore it how they want. And that's mm. my personal style is very much trying to do that. So I, I have adventures, I have things going on around them, and especially the more invested they get into NPCs, the more th- what those NPCs are doing is interesting to them if I need want them to go on a particular plot line. But I really hate dictating things to the players. It's like um, if, especially because it breeds player confidence in a way that's not good. Like, if mm. if the players need to rescue the prince who is imprisoned in a castle that's surrounded by 10,000 soldiers, usually the players will assume that if they just go to that town, they'll find the helpful NPC who's got the key to the dungeon sewer that will take them through. I try very emphatically to tell my players, no. Uh, if you want to rescue the prince who was caught in the castle surrounded by 10,000 soldiers, well, you better start figuring out a way to get around 10,000 soldiers because I'm not going to do your job for you. <laughs> uh, and if I can make sure that the players are on board with that's how I run the games, then that usually, to my experience, just produces a much more fun game because they have objectives, they have things to do, but I'm as surprised as they are by their answers. And it's also more drama because... And this is, again, a personal GMing style, but I've never enjoyed it when the players rush into combat because they assume everything they meet is level appropriate or that, you know, they rush into mm. the story because the, if the GM really cares about X prince being rescued, he'll give us a way to do it. And I never 
those to me to me that produces players who don't care. I much mm. prefer when I can get the players to care. If they know death is a real possibility if they make a stupid mistake and if they know that they have to be the ones to come up with the plan, then by definition they get interested in the story because they have to be proactive in the story. They have to be a main character figuring out the plot and trying to avoid death because the narrator in the sky is not going to do it for them. <laughs> yeah, no, that, and I think that, that, uh, that relates to, cause my, my DMing style has changed similarly. Um, but I think that speaks towards the main thing that's changed about my DMing style, which is in the beginning, I feel like I always tried, I was always trying to present a world and a story thinking that if I made the world and story interesting enough, then it would make the, it would make the players happy. Like that was the goal is that if they really enjoyed playing, if this world was good enough, they would enjoy playing in it. Whereas as I played more and more, I've realized that no, the job isn't to present the best possible world or the most interesting plot lines. It's to usher your players actions into a story. It's, it's less about presenting something and reacting to their uh, decisions and their personal goals and what they want to do with the world after it's been shown. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I feel like that's a pitfall that a lot of starting DMs fall into is that they're, you know, they've written 15,000 words on their, on their world <laughs> and by God, you're going to see every inch of it. Like, I mean, to bring it back around to that example of the GM who dumped the money on us, it you know, his story that he dictated to us could never be as important to us personally as something we chose. I mean, he still he made a good story. I'm not like trying to diss him, but if you want your players to be engaged, they'll be. I find at least, and this is the way that I am as a player, I am much more interested in what I do during downtime than what I do in the dungeon, because downtime is my choice. It's my choice mm. what I do with my rewards. It's my choice where I go and who I make friends with. And that's why I feel like that classic GM problem of, you know, the, the NPC that you lovingly crafted isn't nearly as interesting as the barmaid that they talked to that one time. You know, it's one of those classic D&D &D mm -hmm. memes. I think it's because... The NPC with a tragic backstory is your storytelling time, while the N the barmaid, who has no backstory, means that it's the player's choice to talk to her, the player's choice to engage with her, the player's choice to, to create a story that involves her. And it's always more interesting to the players when something is rooted in their own choice. Oh yeah, I feel like pretty much every DM who's been DMing for a while realizes that they won't know what the favorite NPCs are until the players pick the favorite <laughs> NPCs. Yeah, I think that that's going to do it for us here today on Dear DM. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, before we go, I want to remind everyone to please send us your questions, either to our Twitter account at Dear DM Podcast or in an email to DearDM.Submit at gmail.com. The more questions we get, the more content we can produce for all you lovely people and the happier I'll be. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far, it would mean the world to us if you could please share it with your friends or give us a review on iTunes. Um, as always, I want to thank my dear friend Paul Parisa for the use of his song, Whether or Not. Um, he's a fantastic musician and a dear friend. And as always, I want to thank Nerdsmith for having us as part of the network. We're so happy to have uh, to be a part of this community. And you can find us and all the other wonderful programs at nerdsmith.org. And finally, and most importantly, I want to thank you, Adam, for joining me. It's been very fun having you here. Thank you. Why don't you tell folks where they can find your info, your social, uh, the spheres of power, all the above. All right. So we have a Patreon uh, for drop that's Drop Dead Studios. We have a Facebook page that is Drop Dead Studios. I just can't get into using Twitter. I'm sorry. So if you want to talk <laughs> to us, um, oh, we also have a Discord server that's connected to the Patreon. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, um, Facebook is a good way to do it. If you want to ask questions, we're always hanging around the Giant in the Playground forums. And of course, that uh, Patreon, Discord and stuff like that. And yeah, at this moment, then, when this comes live, Ultimate Spheres of Power is a Kickstarter where, because of that Patreon, we have produced over 20 handbooks that expand the Spheres of Power system. 
to try and really make it be able to do whatever you need magic to do. And Ultimate Sears of Power is the grand compilation. It's going to be over 400 pages long. It's going to take everything that we have learned over the past several years of playing with the Sears of Power system and publishing in the Sears of Power system and creating an ultimate definitive version of it. Um, go, so that we'll be building off of and using going forward. And especially when we do, you know, do conversions to other systems and stuff like that. So please come take a look. That's just on Kickstarter, Ultimate Sears of Power. Awesome. Uh, so as always, we like to end the show with a little bit of a game tale from our guest, uh, something epic or funny that has happened at one of your tables. Um, so Adam, do you have something you'd like to close us out with? Hmm. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of this thing, my dad taught me how to play D&D, that we grew up playing the game. And so I don't, I was pretty young at the time when he was running a lot of his games, but he, if I can go all the way back, uh, for a lot of people who are new school players, they perhaps don't appreciate what old school players mean when they say run in the game old school. But uh, for me, the best example of that was various traps that my dad would throw at us, where he would, things would, so you come to a hallway that is filled with fog, and so we decided to tie a rope around the ranger so he could go in through the fog, and we would hold on to the rope so we would know if anything happened to him, but that had been anticipated by the designer of the dungeon, who actually had giants who actually reached through holes in the walls to grab the rope and feed it, so we didn't know what was happening to him at the end, and that level of <laughs> trap on trap on think through and think through was what really made the game. And that, to me, has always been one of my favorite table stories when I looked at my dad and realized he was a mad genius and just how much fun you could have, especially because he was, as a dad, trying to encourage us to think what he could do. That was his way of teaching us life lessons through D&D, was actually trying to put us into situations where we had to think our way out, and then he could just add another layer of difficulty and another layer of difficulty as we got older <laughs> and to keep it challenging. So that was one of my favorite to this day stories from the table. Awesome. That, that is fantastic. Um, yeah. So thank you again so much for joining me, Adam. It's been fantastic having you here. Um, and all, as always, I don't actually have a catchphrase to close out the show with. So for now, goodbye. Goodbye. When you venture through the looking glass and into fairy, you know better than to expect a normal life upon your return home. Features are changed and marked indelibly by the strange magics of that land and adhere themselves to your fate. Now the veil between the worlds is thinner than ever and only one who has journeyed to fairy and back again can help those unaware of the dangers that lurk around every corner. That someone is Alison Underland. At nerdsmith.org or wherever you download your podcasts.